today's A Slice of Medieval with myself, Sharon Bennett Connolly, and my wonderful colleague, Derek Burks. Today, I think the onus is going to be heavily on Derek to do the talking because this is more his subject than mine, but I will do my best. We're going to discuss, examine and look into the Woodville family. Very prominent during the Wars of the Roses, Elizabeth Woodville became wife to King Edward IV and they are controversial, to say the least. So, Derek, who were the Woodvilles? <laughs> well, before I say that, I'm going to I'm going to make a bold statement that is almost everything said these days about the Woodvilles is based on almost zero contemporary evidence. So, there's a lot said and written about them, and uh, I come across these things all the time, and um, the end result is steam coming out of my ears. The Woodvilles, basically, they're a big family, but that's not unusual for the <laughs> Middle Ages amongst the gentry. They're a gentry family. Elizabeth Woodville's father, Richard Woodville, was a gentleman rather than a nobleman. Her mother... Jaquetta of Luxembourg could claim to have rather higher status, at least noble, if not if not royal blood, somewhere in her veins. But in general, they're, they're not a family that you would expect to have married into the royal family of any country, particularly. And the problem which is always put forward about the Woodvilles is that. They were upstarts. They they were the fact that Elizabeth Woodville married Edward the Fourth uh, was a, a travesty. They, she should never he should never have married Elizabeth Woodville. Apart from the fact that she was from a if you like a lower class than 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 a king would normally look for in a wife, uh, she was also a widow. So she'd been married before, and she she had two children from her previous marriage. So. That, again, was pretty unusual. Kings didn't normally marry somebody who already had children. It wasn't unique, but it but it was unusual, certainly, for the time period. Certainly not for the king's first marriage. Henry IV married a widow, yeah. um, Joanna of Navarre, but that was his second marriage. He already had sons and daughters from his first marriage to Mary de Bohun. Yeah. The problem that arises with the Woodvilles is that Elizabeth Woodville has five brothers and six sisters. <laughs> so that's a lot of people to, to, to marry into the royal family. It's a huge influx of people, all of whom have to be provided for, as they would, you know, if they married into a noble family. There would be connections that would have to be made. Um, the difference being that with the royal family, all of the connections that are made with those sisters and brothers take on a, a rather greater importance. 
and everybody looks at them as being very significant connections. Mm. I think the other so, thing is everybody sees their eyes as being post Edward, you know, when Elizabeth married Edward. But Richard Woodville, Elizabeth's father, was a bit of a social climber even before that anyway. He had been in the service of John Duke of Bedford. Yes. When Bedford died, he escorted Bedford's wife, Jaquetta, Wood Jaquetta Duchess of Bedford, back to England, secretly married her, and then and was fined a thousand pounds by the king for doing <laughs> that. But then was forgiven. And they had, I think I was just reading, they had something like between seven and eight thousand pounds a year income because of Jaquetta's dower lands. But they were already serving in the cause as well. Jaquetta was a friend of Margaret of Anjou. And yes. Rivers was given a barony in about, I can't remember, was it 1448 or 1450 or something? So he was already rising through the ranks before Elizabeth married Edward. It's just the rise got a little steeper and a little faster after his daughter's marriage. <laughs> yeah, I mean, obviously, he he already had arranged a good marriage for Elizabeth. She was married to uh, John Gray. And, um, you know, that was a that was a good marriage mm -hmm. for for a Woodville daughter. And if John Gray hadn't been killed at um, at uh, St. Albans, I think it was. Mm. Uh, yeah, St. Albans in, in 1461. Uh, and he was on the Lancastrian side. More of more of that later. But but there's no reason to suppose that um, Elizabeth's marriage to Edward could possibly have taken place. So so in a sense, the whole thing <laughs> occurs because her husband is killed. Otherwise, yeah. she wouldn't be on the marriage market at all. And all of the things that we're going to talk about would be completely irrelevant. Um, so. I, the other thing that, that always annoys me a little bit, Richard Woodville is no Thomas Boleyn. He is not hawking his daughters around court, hoping to entrap uh, the king or anybody else into marrying them. Um, yes, he's a social climber, but, you know, every single noble or gentle family in 15th century England, wanted to advance their cause, yeah. the family's cause. That's what it was all about. That was the mindset. Um, anything else to talk about that in any other way is nonsense, because he was typical. Maybe he was a, a bigger social climber than others. Maybe he, he worked harder at it, but it was the same mindset for all of them, whatever, whatever class they were, really. I mean, we said mm. this before. And when you have um, a big family, you have to provide for them in some way. You have to marry them off to various other families to make sure that you're not paying for them for the rest of your life. Yeah, I mean, the, the one of the myths that, uh, I mean, she has six sisters and clearly marriages for six sisters of sufficient standing to 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 match their new status is going to affect the, the royal marriage market or the mm. noble marriage market. It must do. That, that's a lot of marriages. But she had five brothers, and only one of those had a marriage that was arranged because of his status. Yeah. Now, obviously, his marriage was a corker. His uh, John Woodville's marriage to uh, 
Catherine, Duchess of Norfolk, was, shall we say, excited comment at the time, let alone recently. Yeah, um, December to May wedding, if ever there was one. <laughs> yeah, a, sli a slight age difference. He was in his 20s, she was in her 60s. Again, I I've seen no evidence at all that suggests she didn't like this idea. <laughs> Well, what's um, like? <laughs> her heirs didn't like this idea at all. But uh, there's nothing. Yeah, exactly. A, a toy boy. So yeah, that there's there's a real problem. A lot of marriages, a lot of connections to be made, and it's a problem that wouldn't have arisen with so much certainly with a foreign marriage, and it wouldn't have arisen with a marriage to a smaller. Uh, number of siblings, a family with a smaller number of siblings. This is one of the things that riles me, though, because a lot of the time it's like, oh, because he married, um, Edward married a subject, and it was the first, he was the first king since I think Ethelred the Unready was the last one to marry a subject. So for 400, 500 years, every king had married a foreign princess. No one had married a subject, and it wasn't fair. They saw it as not fair to raise one raise one subject higher than the others who was born at the same level as everybody else in the country. Now, at the same time, you look at the marriage of Henry the Sixth and Margaret of Anjou. She was a foreign princess, and she gets criticised for being a foreign princess. So <laughs> you can't win. You can imagine Edward going, well, if I marry a subject, I've got none of that. She's a foreigner. She's doing this to ally to France or anything. I can just, you know, she's going to be in it for England rather than her own family abroad. <laughs> he gets criticised because she's a subject and Henry VI gets criticised because she isn't a subject. Yeah, I mean, I th there are obviously problems with marrying abroad. There are obviously problems with marrying domestically. But I think... It... At the end of the day, I don't think it actually matters. Uh, a lot of things, people draw a lot of importance from some individual points, which I think in the great scheme of things in, in the 15th century don't actually make much difference. The only thing that makes much difference with the, the number of marriages, the only person who is affected more than most is Warwick, the Earl of Warwick, Richard Neville, Earl of Warwick. But even, even he, as perhaps we'll we'll look at in a minute, even he does not suffer directly because of most of the Woodville marriages. Well, the marriage itself, that's a that's that's an interesting topic, which has been discussed until it's reduced to dust, more or less. Um this whole idea of of uh, was the marriage to Elizabeth valid has been raised. <laughs> because it was raised in 1483 uh, by Richard III. What are your thoughts on that? Well, my, I have a problem with the... Well, it must be true, because Edward had a habit of doing it. He must have agreed to marry Eleanor Butler because he did have this habit of, marry, of agreeing to marry women to get them into bed. Now, the only woman we actually know he agreed to marry to get into bed is Elizabeth Woodville. <laughs> and to me, that's not, and her with her, he acknowledged the wedding, and he acknowledged the married marriage, and he stayed married to her. That to me is not a habit. So I don't no. get why they can say Edward had a habit of doing this. He only had a habit of doing it if the pre-contract's true. If the pre-contract isn't true, 
then he didn't do it with anybody else. Nobody else came forward and said, oh, we agreed to marry me and then he dumped me. Yeah, I mean, even if uh, even if the pre-contract was valid, um, that does, that's not habit either. Um, you know, it's, it, it's one occasion in the past that he did it years and years earlier when he was a lot younger as well. And at the end of the day, whether the marriage was valid or not actually turns out to be uh, legally irrelevant. So when Bishop Stillington produces this particular rabbit out of the hat in mm. June 1483, uh, at a ra rather timely moment for Richard, Duke of Gloucester. Stillington had already been imprisoned by Edward at one stage. So why didn't he speak out then when he was already in trouble with Edward? He could have spoken out then and said that Edward had previously been married and the marriage was invalid. And then, you know, he's already in trouble and in the tower. So he would have just well, piled that on. <laughs> with Stillington, it, you've got two views. Either Stillington was a bishop for hire and would say whatever anybody wanted him to say, or Stillington was, you know, an honest man who had kept this secret for a long time and suddenly decided to unburden himself. But whichever way you look at it, it's the timing yes. of the announcement that is suspicious because it just so happened that that was Richard had already decided to say that his brother was illegitimate. Yeah. That was his first line of argument that his brother was illegitimate. A little bit of a sort of slur on his mother who was still living, Cecily mm -hmm. Neville. Um, so it, it does read rather like, okay, that didn't, nobody fell for that yeah. one. What else can we try? But the other thing is, and everybody would have known this at the time, this is this is something that, again, contemporaries knew, but modern people don't, is that the fact that, let's say, for argument's sake, the marriage was invalid. Let's mm -hmm. say, let's go wild and say that the princes, known as the princes in the tower, Edward and Richard, let's say they were illegitimate. It makes not a jot of difference at all in terms of them inheriting the throne. It's not something for Parliament to rule on in itself. That's the job of a church court. So what should have happened is that a church court should have been convened to decide whether or not the princes were illegitimate. And then, regardless of what the church court said, all Parliament has to do is say, oh, well, he's the rightful king, so fair enough, let's move mm. on. That's all they have to do. It doesn't matter whether he's illegitimate or not for the purposes of the succession. Yeah. So all of that chat that goes around that idea these days is just hot air. Mm. It's a waste of time. And the thing is, if Elizabeth Woodville was not aware of the pre-contract and married Edward IV in good faith, the boys wouldn't have been declared illegitimate by the church. No, exactly. So, I mean, it's the whole thing is, a, is the biggest red herring around, really. The, the lack of a church inquiry into the marriage, um, I think, is the significant point. If Richard had believed in it, he surely would have gone through the proper channels of a church inquiry into the marriage. And he didn't. He just overrode it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's it's um, it's window dressing for for what happens in mm -hmm. June for well throughout fourteen eighty three really after Edward's death. We haven't really 
looked at why Edward decided to marry uh, Elizabeth yet. We haven't we haven't dealt with that particular hot potato. Thoughts? Given that Henry VI only had one son, and that was it, one child, she already had two sons, so he knew Elizabeth was fertile and had had boys. Now, because <laughs> Henry VI only had one son, the throne wasn't as secure. Right. Because he only had this one son and an heir, and as we know, once that son and heir was killed at Tewkesbury, that was the end of Henry VI. But yeah. looking at Elizabeth Woodville, she already had two sons. I mean, her mother had had 14 children. Yeah. So as a dynastic choice, Elizabeth Woodville was perfect. She Do was you also... think that's why Edward married her? <laughs> no, she was also described as the most beautiful woman in the country or something like that, wasn't she? And we know Edward had a thing for the ladies. So maybe it was true love um, or true infatuation. Mm. When he met and married her. But as the gentleman he was, he followed through with it, acknowledged the marriage and brought her to court. And now it took him a few couple of months, but he did do that. Um, I just think it's got all the elements of a love story, but it also has some dynastic common sense in there. And like I said, because she wasn't a foreign princess, you didn't have the argument of her looking after her foreign relatives rather than looking after England. So I think also with the stick Margaret of Anjou got for being a foreigner and for losing them the Hundred Years' War and things like that, Elizabeth Woodville didn't bring any of that baggage. She brought a lot of other baggage <laughs> with her. I'm prepared to accept that um, Edward, in inverted commas, fell in love with her because Edward fell in love with just about any woman around but she was a particularly attractive woman and uh she was available because she was a widow you and know I, I can understand that there's that chivalry isn't there she needed help she needed his protection and he was you know a early 20s young man still high on chivalry even though he'd seen a few battles by now um he would have seen that as being his duty yeah, it wasn't Especially his duty to marry her, though. With his own desires. <laughs> I think, um, you know, if the, if uh, if uh, a qualification for marrying the new, young, handsome king was that you needed help, there would have been a queue four miles long. Um, <laughs> but, I, yeah, I think the fact that the marriage was kept secret was ample evidence that Edward himself knew how it would be received yeah. by some of his contemporaries. So... There's an interesting point that was that has been raised there about when they actually married. The traditional date is the 1st of May, mm. um, but there's not actually any evidence at all. Contemporary, there's no contemporary evidence to say that that is true. The 1st of May is, is, is a kind of a lyrical date, I think. May Day is a day associated with love and marriage and so yeah. on. And I think... Um, yeah, wasn't there a tradition where the girls, the single girls, that's the maypole dance, isn't it? The single yeah. girls of the village dancing to show off their yeah. attributes. So it kind of fitted the uh, the whole circumstances, but but that that's with hindsight. Mm -hmm. and nobody actually knew on the 1st of May that the king had married Elizabeth Woodville, and he may not have married her then. Mm -hmm. And there is a suggestion that he married her as late as August. 
1464. And if that was the case, then really he was only keeping the marriage secret for a matter of weeks rather than months. And I mm. think there is a big difference there. If you're keeping something secret for months, you are really worried about it. Yeah. But if you're keeping it a secret for weeks, then you're just thinking really how to announce it and how to how to present it, aren't you? Mm. So again, we're hamstrung by lack of genuine evidence on that. But yeah, I mean I, I can see I can see the argument why he married her. And I also think the key thing in, in Edward's character is is his supreme self-confidence. Edward would paint himself into a corner but decide that he could definitely get out of it. Mm. Uh, he would believe that he could get out of anything. And if we follow the events of his reign, we can see this is pretty much true. He does more or less get out of everything. <laughs> so I think he probably thought, yeah, OK, there's going to be a bit of noise. There's going to be a few complaints from certain individuals. You know, step forward, mm. Richard Neville, Earl of Warwick. You know, it won't, it won't be popular with some people, but what the heck, that's what I'm doing. And I can convince people. I can persuade people. He would have believed that, absolutely. And to an extent, I think he was right. But part of the problem was, was the existence of a man who had a lot of power yeah, in the kingdom. Yeah, I think he underestimated how much offence Warwick would take. Maybe, but but I also think that he it was a deliberate policy to reduce his, his reliance on mm. on Warwick. I mean Warwick that is um was too powerful. Yeah, that is one of the theories. I think it was in um David Baldwin's book on Elizabeth Woodville. Um he actually suggested that you know how Elizabeth gets blamed for her siblings being married off and rising in the ranks. Um it's she who married Edward and then organized all these weddings. David Baldwin suggests it's actually Edward IV who did it in order to create a cohort out of the aristocracy that was wholly dependent on him and grateful to him, whereas people like Warwick were old aristocracy, had inherited lands and didn't have a reliance on Edward for further advancement. There wasn't any further Warwick could go other than maybe the crown if he managed to, if he somehow worked out a way to do that. Whereas with um, Elizabeth's siblings, Edward had people he could rely on who would do his bidding because they owed everything to him. I certainly would agree with that. The thing that you've got to underpin everything we say about Edward IV with the fact that how often did Edward IV do something he didn't actually want to do? And how often did he want to do something that other people said, oh, no, don't do that. That's a big mistake. And he still did it because mm. he's, in, he's his own man. So any argument for me which suggests that his wife was ruling what he wanted to do is nonsense because it didn't yeah. happen like that. That's not who he was. Yes, he would. I, we'd all be influenced if if his <laughs> wife says, look, we need to find a marriage for so-and-so, then He's obviously going to agree with her. He knows that's got to be done and and he will consider candidates. But when he's considering those candidates, if Elizabeth Woodville says, oh, I like the look of that one, he's, he's going to make his decision on the families he wants to connect to. And, and it, it builds up a number of different families, not just through marriages of the Woodvilles. Mm -hmm. That's the other thing. It's not only that's not the only means he uses to raise other people up to rival Warwick. Problem is, of course, Warwick 
isn't too happy about that. I mean, we have to remind ourselves of the extensive powers of and, and land holdings of the Earl of Warwick. I mean, this is a he he has more land than the king. Mm-hmm. He has more wealth, immediate wealth, available wealth than the king. So that brings with it a lot of a lot of clients, a lot of supporters mm-hmm. who are also dependent on Warwick's wealth and importance for their wealth and importance. He married the wealth as well, though, didn't he? It wasn't his inherited wealth. He married it when he married uh, Anne Beecham. It, it was both. It was both because his father, also confusingly called oh, Richard yes. Neville, uh, had 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 a pretty good marriage as well. Yeah. Um, and as a result of, I mean, the Nevilles married well yeah. uh, over you know a period of about hundred years. It's always said, oh, well, Warwick was old nobility. Well, the Neville family were a northern noble family, but yeah. they, they weren't that important anywhere other than in the north until, really, Richard Neville's father, mm-hmm. uh, the Earl of Salisbury. And then, then they, they gained connections. In the case of uh, Warwick's father, his connections were with the family of Richard, Duke of York. Cecily Neville was his sister mm-hmm. and so on. So... You know, this isn't something that's just suddenly arisen, but equally, it's not something that dates from 1066. You know, these the Neville family were relatively old aristocracy, but that's got nothing to do with it, really. Mm-hmm. It's the personal ambition of Warwick and his own personal situation, because Warwick had no sons. And in that respect, he was exactly the same as King Edward. He had no sons in the 60s mm-hmm. either. So if you look at it from Warwick's point of view, and I think it's fair to do so, he needs to marry his daughters well. They are going to have his entire inheritance between them. So he needs to make sure that his daughters marry well. Now, there are lots of noble families they can marry into, but a lot of the sort of eligible ones are hoovered up by the Queen's sisters, um, eligible chaps. So what's left... And, and the notable one of those, of course, is the Duke of Buckingham, who yeah. would be a good prize, um, a good prize in terms of his lineage, not in terms of his personality. But he's he's one of those that marries a Woodville sister. And that does annoy Warwick because he's seen as a potential, Buckingham is seen as a potential suitor for one of his daughters. But then Warwick gets it into his head, well, I can't, my, my daughters can't marry down. And if mm. they can't marry equals, they're going to have to marry up. And there are two eligible bachelors knocking about who are the king's brothers and so warwick thinks well again looking at it from his point of view as far as he's concerned edward has created this problem for him so edward's got the solution in his hands let his daughters marry the king's brothers or at least one of them clarence Mm -hmm. perhaps to marry uh warwick's elder daughter and edward says no that's not happening forget it it's not going to happen he shuts the door He slams the door, really. And I think that tells us a number of things. One, that Edward understands how powerful Warwick is, and there's no way that he's going to marry one of his brothers. But Clarence is the heir presumptive at that point, because there's no male heir, Mm -hmm. direct heir from Edward. So why on earth would you marry your brother, who is your heir, to the most powerful family in England, mm-hmm. you just wouldn't do it. Only a fool of a king would do it. And Edward was not a fool of a king. So 
I can see it from both points of view. I can see why Warwick was annoyed. I can see it, well, more than annoyed. He, he felt that his family's whole future lay in tatters. Mm. He had to achieve a, a decent marriage, or at least one of his daughters didn't have to didn't have to be both, but at least one of them for the family to survive. And again, it's that 15th century mindset. Family was all the future of the family was what dictated what you did. And so when Edward, quite reasonably from Edward's point of view, shut down that possibility, it meant Warwick. Uh, was very disaffected indeed. So in that sense, the Woodville marriages contributed to that, mm. but it didn't it didn't create the whole problem. But but one can understand it from, from both points of view, I think. In 1469, Neville basically rebels. He's been refused the marriage of George and Isabel by Edward IV, and he's had enough. So he actually seizes the king and takes control of the country. I don't know what he actually thought he could do by taking control of Edward. Yeah, I think I think this, again, comes down to uh, Warwick's personality. Uh, Warwick liked to present himself as Edward's kind of representative, his mentor, uh, as if Edward was some kind of cipher that could be controlled. And in the courts of Europe, Warwick was 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 a good diplomat, but he was a particularly good diplomat for himself rather mm. than Edward. So the, the sort of ruling heads of Europe, of countries in Europe, tended to deal with Warwick because they thought he had the king's ear. They thought that he was he was a, a big influence on the king. So when the king married somebody like Elizabeth Woodville rather than Warwick's own preference, I think, was Boner, Lady Boner of Savoy or Princess mm. Boner of Savoy. It reflected on Warwick. It showed Europe that somehow Warwick didn't quite have the control that he pretended he did. And that drove Warwick. It drove Warwick into rebellion in the end because he, he had he decided if I can't control Edward, then I need an alternative. And he looked to George Duke of Clarence as that alternative. Big mistake, as he soon realised, because uh, George was sort of everything Edward wasn't. They looked, they had similar look, good looks, but uh, apart from that, that's where the similarities ended. So, so he engineers a situation, all the while sort of uh, smiling and, you know, saying everything's fine. He engineers a situation where he is sort of issuing propaganda, which is against Edward. He's undermining Edward. He he marries his daughter, Isabel, to George in, in Calais, which is his own little patch of uh, the world because he's captain of Calais. Calais has a standing army. It's the only part of England that does. And uh, so he has... He has force available, but he's already prepared the way in 1468. He's already got his clients in the north of England, creating unrest, creating problems. And in the end, we have this army that marches down from the north in 1469. And I think Warwick's intentions are made pretty clear when that army defeats a royal army. We won't go into the ins and outs of, of the Battle of Edgecote, but the upshot is that what, what does Warwick do immediately? He executes... Two of the people that he regards as upstarts. That, that's um, somebody who thinks he's got power, isn't he? If he thinks he's got the right to execute the Queen's dad and the Queen's brother. <laughs> yeah, I mean, leaving aside the fact that he executes the Queen's father, Richard Woodville, and brother John, uh, he also executes William Herbert and his brother Richard, who are mm. who have been raised up by Edward IV. But leaving aside they're related to the Queen, none of those people have been acting illegally 
None of them have been committing a crime. They have just been doing what the king told them to do, which was defend his his crown against uh, these rebels. Mm. Uh, In theory, Warwick was nothing to do with the rebels. And with with hindsight, we know, and perhaps they did at the time, that he was behind it. But, you know, all these people have have done is uh, is acted for the king and he's executed them. He's got no authority to execute anybody at all. No. Um, But that shows that his level of anger against certain individuals, notably Richard Woodville, the Queen's father. But it also shows his ridiculous ambition, his ridiculous Mm -hmm. sense of his own importance. Because then what happens is he captures the king and he's got the king and he must think, right, now it's... I can now control things. If he couldn't control a young Edward, does he really think he can control a slightly older one? Yeah. I mean, it, it's it's it shows him. The, the cracks show at once. You know, mm-hmm. it just doesn't work. He's either got to kill Edward, which would be seen as a very, very major step. Yeah. Or he's got to concede, which is what he does. Mm. It just, you just so, get this image that he backed himself into a corner, Warwick, and he wasn't quite sure how he could get out of it or where to go. He'd got the king in his hands, but he still, he wasn't king. He couldn't rule. He needed no. Edward to do his bidding. And Edward was like, no, you sort it out. You made this mess. You sort it out. <laughs> the choice was simple. It, he, if he was a bit more ruthless, he would have just killed Edward and made Clarence king. That was, mm. that, that was the only thing he could do. Because yeah. at that point, there was still no male heir from Edward's marriage to Elizabeth Woodville. So he didn't do that, I suspect, because no one else on his side would agree to it. Mm. I'm not even sure Clarence would have agreed to it, to be honest. For all his faults, Clarence did not hate his brother. Mm. You know, uh, he may have been uh, seduced into rebelling against him more than once. and, And Clarence did a lot of very stupid things. But I don't think he hated. Well, I'm sure he didn't hate his brother. Hmm. So, yeah, what Warwick's actions were only partly to do with the Woodville marriage. Uh, they were there were more to do with his own declining influence and the influence of others, including the Woodville, but not not exclusively the Woodvilles. Yeah. Um, he just didn't like sharing influence. And the thing we must say is that if we're not careful, you can paint a picture that Warwick is in some way being demoted by the king. Mm. Warwick is actually being showered with rewards right through this whole period. Even after 1469, Mm. Edward is still giving him more land, still giving him influence. Um, So it's a nonsense, really. He's not being he's been edged out in terms of being the supreme power behind Edward's throne. But even, you know, that's another myth of the Walls of the Roses, because Warwick did not make Edward the Fourth king. Edward IV made Edward the Wolf King. Yeah. I mean, Warwick, Warwick lost. lost. <laughs> we were about to say the same thing. Warwick lost at St Albans. He lost the battle. He lost possession of Henry VI, which was yep. a key element. And it was left to Edward to pick up the pieces yes. and and, uh, and finally, well, almost finally, defeat the Lancastrians. But yeah, the whole Kingmaker myth is another, another one that pops up. But mm. Warwick isn't really worthy of it, I don't think. So on the other side of this, we've done Warwick and the Woodvilles. We also have Richard, Duke of Gloucester and the Woodvilles. Did they get on 
during Edward IV's reign, because we see this big thing in 1483 where Richard, there's this apparent Woodville conspiracy. I did read somewhere, I can't remember who the author was, but there was rumours that the Woodvilles were conspiring against Richard in 1483, so it was probably true. But there's no actual evidence of this conspiracy. But had they become implacable enemies before that, or was it just a 1483 thing and they got on well until that point? It's yet another myth, really, that surrounds the, the Wars of the Roses. People look at the relationship between the Woodvilles and Richard Duke of Gloucester through the lens of 1483. Mm. So once you know about 1483, you think, oh, well, this must have been growing for a time. It couldn't have just happened. The truth is that there were rivalries during this period. There are always rivalries between noblemen wanting a particular post or a particular parcel of land or whatever. That's that's normal life for the 15th century. There is zero evidence of any animosity between Richard, Duke of Gloucester and Anthony Woodville, Elizabeth's eldest brother, who is who becomes Earl Rivers after his father's death. There's zero. Mm. And in fact, Anthony Woodville asks Gloucester to serve on a tribunal to judge a case in which he's involved, which he can't therefore judge. You do not invite your worst enemy to make a judgment which may affect you adversely. No. So he trusts him. Yeah. And it's quite clear from what happens in 1483 that Earl Rivers, Anthony Woodville, the most prominent member of the Woodville family, the most powerful and wealthy member of the Woodville family, trusts the Duke of Gloucester mm. and believes that he can work with him. So this whole business of animosity, there is no animosity between them at all. There's zero evidence. Now, if we look at Gloucester and the Queen, again, there is zero evidence that these people were at each other's throats. It's nonsense. Mm. There is, however, and this is where the whole can of worms comes from, there is rivalry, quite bitter rivalry, between William Hastings, Edward's oldest friend and supporter, and a, and a pillar of the regime, there is enmity between Hastings and the Queen's eldest or elder son from her previous marriage, uh, Thomas uh, Marquis of Dorset. Now, that rivalry is well documented and well known for a lot of the 1470s and, uh, and 80s. So did they share a woman? Was were they <laughs> lovers of Jane Shaw at the same time? That that is something that has been referred to, but I think the root of it lies. I mean, I have got quite a lot of time for Hastings. I think Hastings is pretty much a straight as a guy, straight as mm. a die kind of chap. Dorset is a waste of space. Thomas Gray, Marquis of Dorset, is an absolute pain in the backside. He never does anything of any value. And it's proved later on in, in later years of his life that he's a turncoat. He's a traitor. He, he's, he lies. You know, he is he is the the worst. Mm. So if you said to me, well, Hastings didn't get on with him earlier on, I'd say, well, yeah, I can understand that <laughs> because he's not actually a very good bloke. Yeah. So what, the, the, there was definite animosity there. It's suggested also, and I think there may be an element of truth in this, that there was animosity between Hastings and Anthony Woodville, Earl Rivers. Mm. The only real justification for that is that um, that they were sort of jockeying for position to be captain of Calais. And as I've said earlier, Calais had a standing army. It was a very 
a very plum job in the administration of any government. Vice regal, wasn't it? It was you yeah, know, a very thing. big, big role. Now Rivers, Rivers had been captain of Calais. Obviously, notably Warwick had been captain of Calais, and look where that ended. But in the end, I mean, the job of captain of Calais did go to Hastings. Hmm. Um, he got it in the end, and maybe he resented that Edward chose Anthony Woodville as the the governor of his his young son Edward, but. I can't see the same level of animosity between Hastings and Rivers as, or the Queen for that matter, as I can with Dorset. Mm. Now, the, the other thing is about the Queen herself. Now, I'm not going to say that Hastings was a pimp, but basically Hastings encouraged his great friend Edward in his womanising activities. Yeah. And these continued long after he married Elizabeth Woodville. And I can't I can't believe that she was happy about that. No. I can't. I think she thought Hastings was a bad influence on him. But Elizabeth was a clever woman. I don't think she would have come between the two because she would have felt that well, she would have known that Hastings and Edward were kind of like brothers. Yeah. Uh, Hastings was a bit older, but they they they'd fought together for so since the beginning mm. for so long that they were they were inseparable friends. So Elizabeth might have not liked Hastings' influence over the king. She might have thought it was not a good thing. But it's easy to forget all these people are actually on the same side. <laughs> That's true. You know, they're on the same side <laughs> up to the moment that Edward dies. And I think it's so easy to, to use hindsight. What I try and do with, the, well, the events of 1483 and what leads up to them is, is to look at what people were trying to achieve, what mm. we know they were trying to do, what we know their situation was, rather than saying, well, they were enemies from the start, so this was bound to happen. Yeah. It didn't happen like that. It just didn't. I'm sorry. It, it just didn't happen like that. No, I think the thing is, in fiction, um, I'm thinking of a couple of novels where it's George Duke of Clarence, who he first accuses Elizabeth of poisoning his wife Isabel through, I can't remember her name. She's she's down in Somerset somewhere, I think. Yeah. yeah some woman. So Isabel, Isabel's midwife supposedly poisoned Isabel after childbirth, and George had her tried and hanged. And this is the yes. start of the downfall of George, who then eventually ends up in the tower, tried and executed, supposedly in a bottle of Malmsey wine, but probably not. But in fiction, that is the point where Richard turns against Elizabeth Woodville because he sees Elizabeth as the one who orchestrated George's downfall after he accused her of being involved in Isabel's death. Yeah, I think more nonsense, I'm afraid. I mean, the, <laughs> the whole thing with Clarence is, you know, Clarence did his best to get himself killed, yeah. to get himself executed. He, he really tried. He worked at it. I he, think what, Edward he was very patient with George. Absolutely. He gave him plenty of opportunity to pull himself out of it, but he never yeah. quite saw the... <laughs> and again, <laughs> again, Edward rewarded Clarence, in, even in the 60s, when, when Clarence was his presumptive heir. He, he made sure that Clarence had lands and, and influence to match that status. So at no point in his entire life after Edward became king could Clarence claim that anyone had persuaded Edward to destroy him or anything else, mm. or even weaken him. The, the big thing in the 1470s really had almost nothing to do with the Queen. It was the dispute between the two brothers, Richard of Gloucester and uh, George Duke of Clarence, over the Warwick inheritance. It was all about the Warwick inheritance. That's what both of them were bothered about. 
Mm. They weren't bothered about the Queen at all, either of them. So Clarence threw out accusations like most people throw confetti at a wedding. You know, he just sort of hurled things out because he was an angry man for a lot of his life, I think. A frustrated, angry man, but really he had less reason to be either frustrated or angry than most people. Typical middle son, wasn't he? Middle child syndrome, <laughs> all written all over his face. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I mean, I've said this before. What a shame that um, Edward the Fourth didn't have brothers like Henry the Fifth did. Yes. Who largely were going to protect his legacy. They're not perfect by any means, but I think uh, Clarence is a weak read in any mm. in any judgment, really. It, it's difficult to fathom how, how he manages to see the world, really. Mm. Uh, particularly as he does get, he gets half the, the, more or less half the Neville inheritance, which is obviously a massive inheritance. But um, he's not happy with that. He wanted all of it. And yeah, I mean, the, the Neville inheritance actually has effects long after Clarence is executed. Mm -hmm. So it's a big reason for what happens in 1483. But we won't digress onto that today. I must say, um, I do wonder how Edward IV felt, how, how many times he just thought, I wish Edmund was still here. Because you get this impression that Edward and Edmund, Earl of Rutland, the two yeah. oldest brothers, had grown up together. Yeah, absolutely. Would have trusted each other implicitly. I and mean, it does make you wonder what Edward would have been like if he'd had Edmund, who was, what, two years younger than him. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Stalwart support during yep. his reign. They were on the same page completely. Yeah. Whereas Clarence was a bit younger and, and Richard was even younger. I mean, Richard was a, a young boy when, when everything was kicking off in 1460. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. I think uh, if, if he'd had Edmund beside him, A, Clarence would not have been as significant anyway. Mm. And Edmund's influence would have been far more positive, as far as we can tell. I mean, it's yeah. it's easy to fantasise a bit on these things when somebody dies young. But my suspicion is, like yours, that since they were raised together and that they were close brothers, that there would have been a relation, a much better working relationship when Edward came to be king. Mm. Uh, I think I think that's got to, got to be likely. But it didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> So we've mentioned a couple of times now, and this is a person I did, I did, this was my choice to put him into this as a specific question, Anthony Woodville, who became Earl Rivers. Um, I always see him described as a true Renaissance man. He was a writer, a soldier, um, and he just sounds like, you didn't imagine that most people would be jealous of him because he just sounds perfect. <laughs> I don't think he was perfect. Obviously, nobody's perfect. but. I agree with you. I think he was a, a Renaissance man. He, his patronage of William Caxton, for example, mm. puts him above the rest in terms of his of his patronage of the arts. I mean, that was a major, a major support of a new technology at the time, yeah. more or less. And as you say, he, he was a he was an excellent soldier. He had everything going for him, really. And um, also uh, a, a humble man in many ways. I mean, he he, he did the pilgrimage to uh, um, Santiago de Compostela. Santiago, that's it, Santiago de Compostela. He did that pilgrimage, even though Edward didn't want him to go. He he said, "Well, you know, spiritually, this is this is something I need to do." After all the the death and chaos of the previous few years, this was in the early seventies after Tewkesbury and so on. So. I, I I admire the man. I think he's great. I think mm. he's one of the great men of the age. And people have said, well, 
It was a big mistake to make him the governor of uh, Prince Edward. And I'm thinking, why? Who was better? Who was better equipped to raise a young prince? Nobody, basically. One of his books was one of the first ever printed, The Dicks and Sayings of, I can't remember what, of the Philosophers. Um, he did a very good job of raising um, Edward, I think. And he, of course, he was he was also personally totally loyal to Edward, the King Edward. So yeah. from that, from Edward, the king's point of view, that was an obviously good reason for choosing him. But I think when we look at um, what little we know about Prince Edward in 1483 and his actions and so on, I think we can say that his governor did a fantastic job of raising him as a prince. Mm. Um, uh, and let's, in passing shut down this Victorian image of Prince Edward as some sort of pasty-faced little oik who knew nothing at all and was crying in his sleep and all the rest of it. The young Prince Edward was his father's son, but he was also his mother's son. He was a, he was a strong individual, yeah. and, and he needed a strong governor. Mm. The, the evidence is totally clear that Anthony Rivers took great pains to control shall we say, the um, the things that the young prince wanted to get up to. And uh, he did a good job there. He did his best. Mm. Uh, he was like a sort of modern parent, sometimes having to ground their teenager. Um, yeah. And Edward was, a, you know, he was a teenager. He was, he was into his teens and starting to explore the world, all the rest of it, get into mm. trouble. I cannot understand any criticism of Anthony Woodville. Some people said, oh, well, yes, but he was always trying to get his lands and so on. Come on, it's the 15th century mindset. Every person who owns land wants to get some more. It's yeah. as simple as that. There's nobody saying, oh, have a bit of my land, have the rights to this, I don't want them. Mm. They're all, they're all, that's something they all did. It was part of yeah, normal life. life. There were disputes yeah. over land all the way back to the conquest. Yeah, because land was the most important commodity there was. So, yeah. you know, it, it's not something to be trifled with. It but was but he model. was not he was not rapacious in that respect. No. So maybe we leave Elizabeth Woodville till the end and <laughs> just focus for a little bit on uh, 1483 and the idea yeah. of the Woodvilles plotting against Richard III and so on. The first thing to say is the Woodvilles were not an entity. They were not some kind of proto-political party all acting on the same, same lines. It just didn't happen. There were only three Woodvilles who were actually of any significance, really. Well, perhaps four, if you stretch a point. The Queen, Anthony Woodville, and the Marquis of Dorset, um, her, her son from previous marriage. You could add Edward Woodville, who commanded the King's fleet, but... Um, he had no political axe to grind at that time. So, you know, there, there's only a few people, a handful of people, barely mm. even a handful that we're talking about. So when when it's talk, when people say, oh, well, the Woodvilles were plotting, yeah. zero evidence, none whatsoever. And it, it, it grates on me that they call, they say the Woodvilles were plotting to put their king on the throne. They're talking about Edward V, the son and heir of Edward IV and calling him a Woodville, when he's actually uh, a York, he's a son of York, he's a Prince of York, he's the heir to the Yorks, he's not a Woodville. Nobody calls a son by their mother's surname. 
you know, they identify them by their father's name, not their mother's. But with Edward V, he's portrayed as a Woodville rather than a son of York. Yeah, but I think that's where one of the chickens is coming home to roost from Edward's marriage in the first place, because he's married somebody who is an English, uh, well, not a nobleman, but a gentleman. The family is an English family. They already have connections here, there and everywhere of their own. And they they are distrusted because of that. So I can understand that up to a point. The fact is, though, that the, the means for such a plot did not exist. Mm. So it's possible for one of them to have plotted. But the idea that somehow Elizabeth Woodville, the Queen, was plotting with a brother to, to destroy the Duke of Gloucester, to be honest, it, it's just so stupid, I don't know quite how to deal with it, because Gloucester was controlling the north of the kingdom. Mm. Why on earth, when the Woodvilles had zero influence in the north of the kingdom, would they want to unstabilise or destabilise the north? I mean... <laughs> That's about the stupidest thing you could do. And they weren't stupid. No. And it's also, you have to look at it from her point of view. Her husband dies suddenly on, was it the 9th of April? Yeah, something like that, yeah. He's 40. Nobody's expecting him to keel over and drop dead. That's the so key. This isn't a plot that yeah. they've been planning, they've been thinking for the last couple of years, right, Edward's going to, Copy it anytime soon, so we need to get organised. This was, oh my God, my husband's dead. My son's the new king. He's on the Welsh marches. I need to get him here. That's the first thing I need to do. I need to send to Anthony to bring the king at all speed to get him to London and get him crowned. Because the one thing we know is that in a change of king, the country is unsettled and destabilised. Add yeah. to that the fact that the new king is a minor, it, it's not going to make it any better. So the first thing I need to do is get my son here. Also, I've just lost my husband, so the first thing I need to do is get my son here and have my family together. I think um, <laughs> sort it's, it's, we should we should emphasise the fact that, that, that Edward's death was a shock to everybody. Nobody was prepared. Nobody no. had a plan. No. including Richard Duke of Gloucester or anybody else involved. Nobody yeah. had a plan because they weren't expecting it. Yeah. So everybody was sort of acting on the hoof. They were they were reacting to something yeah. they hadn't been expecting at all. So I think if we if we look at the individuals, was the Queen plotting against Gloucester? No, because Gloucester was in the north. She was trying to get the regency for herself, yeah. undoubtedly. But the council didn't want that, particularly. They weren't in favour of that for lots of reasons. She did not actually have the means to get armed forces. Mm. So if she was plotting, she was plotting from the weakest possible position. You know, compared to anybody else at court who had retainers and mm. so on, she she couldn't really call on any armed force. Mm. And, and you might say, say okay, well... regency. We've said this before. We said it with Margaret of Anjou when we did about her. In England, the regency did not automatically go to the mother no. of the heir. You know, Margaret of Anjou couldn't get the regency when Henry VI was mentally incapacitated. Catherine of Valois didn't get the regency when Henry VI was a child. It wasn't mm. a move against. Elizabeth, it wasn't an unusual move to not give her the regency. 
it was tradition to give it to the oldest male relative. Yeah. And to split it between, like with Henry VI, between the brothers of Henry V. So yeah. she must have known that it was get, getting the regency would be was a long shot. Yeah, I think so. People talk about Anthony Woodville, and you you've just said, well, the obvious thing to do if you're if you're wanting to plot is to get the new king there as fast as possible. Anthony Woodville couldn't have gone any slower. <laughs> I mean, he was not. I mean, it was ages before they even left Ludlow. Yeah. And then he took a circuitous route to meet up with Gloucester. I mean, if you're plotting against Gloucester, why on earth would you take so long to get your yeah. nephew to London? And secondly, why on earth would you go to dinner with him with only a handful of your men yeah. and leave the 2,000 men you've got with the prince? Yeah, you wouldn't even meet up with him, would you? They'd gone no. further on. He had to go back. Exactly, yeah. To meet up with Richard. If you were plotting against Richard, you would actually put spurs to the horses and get to London first. Yeah. yeah. And get control yeah. of London. Because as um, my son and I were saying the other day when he was doing a project on London, he who holds London holds England. So if you want to control the king and control England, you get to London first and leave Richard chewing on your dust. But he doesn't. He stops. He goes back and says, hello, Richard, we were waiting for you. I think the reality of it is that, that Rivers assumed that he would be working closely with Gloucester in the next yeah. few months and years. And therefore, it seemed a jolly good idea to meet up with him on the way, sort of chat over how they were going to approach things, when the coronation was going to be. All these sorts of things could they could chat about informally. Um, before they even got to London. I mean, it, it is not some plot. It never was. Now, where does all, the, if it wasn't, where does it all come from? Well, well, partly it comes from Richard's justification for seizing control later on. He has to have a reason. He mm. can't just say, oh, well, I've decided to disinherit my nephew. He has to create a problem that he's solving. And the problem, and the, uh, the problem he creates is, that the Woodville family, the, the, the young prince's family, the mother's family, have been have been trying to get rid of him, trying to weaken him and uh, remove his power. So he creates a plot. And this is evident from the fact that of what happens with Hastings. Now, we ought to talk about Hastings as far as this whole Woodville plot thing is concerned. Mm. Hastings is the one, not Richard Duke of Gloucester, who's in the north at the time of his brother's death. Hastings is the one who panics. Now, remember, we just said it's a shock. How shocked is Hastings going to be that his best friend, his great friend of so many decades, has died suddenly? And he is in a position where he needs to try and sort things out because he's, mm. he's the king's chamberlain, he's at the centre of government, and he's his friend. And he's so, the man on site, you know. Yeah, absolutely. At the, in the marches, Richard's in the north. He's the one who's actually there when Edward died. Yeah, so in the council, they're arguing about the regency and Elizabeth Woodville is strongly putting forward her case. And this panics Hastings a bit more. And he writes to Richard Duke of Gloucester and says, basically, get down here as fast as you can, because otherwise the Woodvilles will have taken control. Or words to that effect, the Queen or whatever. Mm. So the panic... And the fear of the Woodville dominance comes from Hastings, not 
the Duke of Gloucester, which, of course, has its huge ironies later on. Yes. But um, he's the one that panics. He's the one that says to Gloucester, you better get down here. And it's his rivalry with the Queen's eldest son from a previous marriage, the Marquis of Dorset, his rivalry, maybe the Queen's suspicion of him, that that promotes that fear, that panic on his part. So the only person that we know of at the time that actually mentions a fear of Woodville dominance is William Hastings. And he acts upon it. He writes to, mm -hmm. to Gloucester. So that's where I think that those are the two places that this whole plot theory comes from. It's partly Richard's justification later on. A couple of wagons of, of weapons are brought to London to, di to display that the Woodvilles were stockpiling arms. And um, as somebody at the time pointed out, these these are weapons look rather old to be to be <laughs> ones that somebody was intended to use. It's all window dressing, a lot of window dressing going on in, in, in June 1483. And, um, you know, that's part of it. Of course, Hastings, unfortunately for him, he learns too late that he's backed the wrong the wrong horse mm -hmm. because because he's executed on a charge of plotting with the Woodvilles yeah. against the Duke of Gloucester, which also, I think, tells us that, that the reasons why Richard condemned people were not entirely true. Well, I think That's Hastings' sort of... um, loyalty after Edward IV was to Edward V, wasn't it? It was to the son yeah. of his best friend. So yeah. he was everything he did in 1483 was to guarantee the succession of Edward V and have a regency council in place that would rule for him until he was old enough. Yeah, I think um, I think the only two people of any prominence who had no real interest in in Edward the young Edward V's uh, accession and successful reign were Buckingham mm. who had been who had been treated as if he was a, an invisible man by Edward IV, <laughs> rightly so, because he, he was an idiot. But, yeah. <laughs> um, and Gloucester. Gloucester, yeah. Gloucester had a reason why he was worried about the young prince. And, and that was to do with the, the Warwick inheritance. Mm. We don't necessarily need to go into that now, but there were reasons why Richard, Duke of Gloucester, quite justifiably, from his own point of view, would be worried about... Uh, the young king being influenced by by others, shall we say? But Prince Edward, we we can see from the evidence that we do have, which isn't much, but it's pretty clear that when Gloucester goes along to collect the prince, and the prince basically said, "Well, where's where's my uncle Rivers? Where's he gone?" Mm -hmm. And oh, I've arrested him because he was plotting. And the prince is incredulous and and argues very strongly. Again, this this young prince is not just a a pasty faced nobody. He's he's a he's a He's a fighter like his father, and he doesn't he doesn't suffer this treatment gladly, shall we say? Mm -hmm. From and it's, it gets the relationship with Gloucester off to a a worse start than it would ever have got off to if he'd just joined Rivers and and accompanied the king to yeah. to the the capital. So it, I mean, fourteen eighty three deserves a podcast on its own, really. But yes, um, it does. but but I might I might need to lie down for a while before I can cope with that. We'll leave 1483 there, because like you say, it does require, um, I mean, that is about two podcasts on its own if we examine every <laughs> aspect of it. But why don't we go back to Elizabeth Woodville? And does she deserve the reputation that's been handed down through the centuries? Um, or does she deserve our sympathy? 
Well, we've said this a lot, Sharon, in this podcast, and that if you find find a woman who's brave and clever, yep. she has a target on her back, Yes, basically, in the medieval period. She's not supposed to be brave and clever and forthright and proud. She's supposed to be submissive, do as she's told, bear children, yep. look nice, yep. and keep quiet. That's yep. what she's supposed to do. Elizabeth Woodville doesn't fit that mould very well. I think she's she's an excellent person in lots of ways. She has her faults. She is over proud at times. She 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 sort of she plays on her position as queen. I think mm. in in a rather haughty manner at times. But then she's not the only queen to do that. Uh, and who wouldn't, in a sense, you know, you're raised up. It's a it's a difficult one. But I, I th- she has her faults certainly. But I think, but I do admire her. Yeah, I think that's the thing. She wasn't. Whereas somebody like Catherine of Val, Catherine de Valois, Eleanor of Aquitaine, Eleanor of Castile, medieval women, foreign princesses, were raised with the expectation of becoming a queen or a great lady. Mm. So they were taught how to dissemble, you mm. know, how to make it look like they were being humble when they were actually... Um, being strong. I'm thinking yeah. of Philippa of Hainault pleading yeah. with Edward III to release the burghers of Calais. She was doing the traditional role of the queen seeking mercy from the king. Mm. And this was, they knew these this role. They knew how to act, how to get what they wanted from situations because they'd been raised and trained to it. Whereas Elizabeth Woodville had been raised to be the daughter, the wife of a gentleman. Possibly mm. a lord if they could look that high, but the idea it had never would never have crossed her mother's mind that she was going to be a queen at any stage. No. So she hadn't had the training to be a queen. She was doing it on the hoof, basically, and doing yeah. a good job considering. I think at her core, she was a pragmatist like um, her husband. She did what she could. She defended her interests and those of her family if she could. Yeah. She she tried to do the right thing for her family and those that she cared about. And that might mean sometimes that she wasn't particularly kind to rivals or people who who she didn't have that commitment to. But when you look at what she does, I mean, I think pragmatism is at the core because her, her sanctuary in, in Westminster Abbey with, with her daughters, they've got about two rooms, I think. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can't imagine how... Princess Elizabeth felt about it, the older daughter. They were cooped up together. And it's it's an achievement that she survived, that she protected her children mm. um, and did her best to protect her young son, uh, young sons. But in the end, it's also pragmatic that she surrendered to Richard in the end. Yes. Because there was no point in doing it. It was not going to gain anybody anything by doing anything else. And people will say, oh, yes, but why did she... Why did she give in? Well, she was it. She was in sanctuary for quite a while. Mm. Um, yeah, and sanctuary is only supposed to be for forty days, and then you either yeah. endure the realm or seek mercy from the king. So she yeah. didn't have. She couldn't stay in there forever anyway. No, and Richard had offered a good deal. Yes, and 
believing that both her sons were dead, what else was there to do? Stay there forever? Make her mm. make her daughters nuns or something in the end? I mean, what future did they have? They yeah. deserve better than that. And I think she therefore did a deal for them as much as anything else. I mean, she she could hope to gain very little yeah. at that point. Withdraw to a nunnery, whatever. You know, she was not going to get much from Richard, but she could at least ensure that her daughters were able to get something mm. over whom there were a number could, could actually go to court and have all the things that they would have had before and that's what she achieved and I, I just don't get the whole criticism of her really I mean she was obviously accused of being a witch like her mother um, on a number of occasions but that was a standard that was a standard accusation against women women of power and women you didn't like so again, I don't take any of that particularly seriously. I think um, most of her critics see her as the sort of arch enemy of Gloucester. It's, it's the whole cult of Richard III that paints her as the villain of the piece. Yeah. Uh, but I, I just don't see that at all. I just can't see how that could be the case. And I, I'm absolutely certain, I'm as certain as I possibly can be, that contemporaries did not see her in that way. Mm. Um, if they did, then what happened after 1483 could never have happened. It could never have happened that the southern gentry of England, not exactly as to, to a man, but a great number of them, ordinary, solid citizen gentry who, who could basically rule the country for the king, that they decided they could not support Richard. Yes. It wouldn't have happened. If she was the villain, then it couldn't have happened that all these ordinary gentlemen and knights and so on would have voted with their feet and supported Henry Tudor mm. rather than Richard III. It just couldn't have happened. So does she deserve sympathy? Yes, I think so. I think uh, she really does. I mean, she lost so much. And you have this, um, everybody says, you know, she'd made this deal with Richard. She wouldn't have done that if he'd killed her son. Um, but the response to that, of course, is he did kill her son. <laughs> He killed Richard. He had Richard Gray executed at Pontefract yeah. um, the same day that he had her brother Anthony Woodville executed at Pontefract. So she, like you say, she made a deal, and the deal was specifically for her daughters because she she made him promise that he would have him, have her daughters at court and find them suitable husbands. Yeah, absolutely. That was specified, I think, in it the was. in the agreement. Yeah. That, that Richard swore to uphold. And I, I think from Richard's point of view, he was happy with that. He just wanted the whole thing over. Yeah. It was embarrassing for him that she was sat in sanctuary when he was king. She'd already been, there was an act of parliament that said that she was no longer Dowager Queen, but now the widow um, Grey of, of Groby, I think it was. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, so she'd already been demoted. Like you say, she couldn't stay in sanctuary. She had to think of her daughters. She had to sort out some kind of future. Richard was king. So she had to deal with him. There was no no other way around it. Yeah. Again, um, that's why I see her as, as totally practical that, that, you know, whatever she might have wanted to happen, it wasn't going to. Yeah. Or she didn't believe it would. The, the suggestion was made, or has been made, that she and Margaret Beaufort were conspiring to get Henry Tudor on the throne. I, I think 
as time goes on that 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 is less the case but i do think it's likely in the immediate aftermath of her son's disappearance prince's disappearance that she would have been open to all sorts of things mm. including talking to margaret beaufort's uh, representative but what's wrong with that her husband's son the the the, the heir to the throne has just been as she believes done away with mm-hmm. by gloucester so yeah. why wouldn't she conspire against him yeah it'd be exactly. a weak person who didn't really and I don't think she would have conspired to marry Elizabeth of York to Henry Tudor if she hadn't wholeheartedly believed that her sons were dead. Yes, absolutely. Uh, there's no question about that. Anything else is, is is difficult to believe, I think. So, in conclusion, <laughs> I think we would both agree that, that the Woodvilles have had a very bad press. Yes. And the origin of that, whilst there are some issues there, undoubtedly issues, some rivalries and so on, mm. that, that that bad press is really caused by the cult of Richard III and mm. the, the need to find a villain that Richard III was trying to defeat. I, I, I truly believe that's where most of the anti-Woodville ideas come from. Mm. I think so. I think the Woodville legacy should have been a very positive one. Mm. Yeah, we don't say anymore, do we? No, I think that's it. Otherwise, we'll be boiling our cabbages twice, as my mother (laughs) would say. Thank you very much for listening, everyone. I hope that we haven't upset too many people. (laughs) I don't care. (laughs) But I hope we've given people food for thought. Yes. Um, Thank you for listening. Uh, Do join us next time when we will be interviewing... Ian Ross about his two novels on Simon de Montfort, which is, let me get this right, Battle Song, which is the first book, and then War Cry. So I'm looking forward to that. And we hope you have a very Merry Christmas and a wonderful New Year. Yeah, so it's Merry Christmas. Great. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Derek's been on the eggnog. I've had nothing to drink yet. <laughs> so it's Merry Christmas from her and Merry Christmas from me. And uh, we'll see you next year. Yep, see you next year. Merry Christmas.